This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Looking tonight at verses 11 through 28. Hebrews 7. Uh, last week, we saw the first part of this chapter where the writer of the Hebrews uh, returns to Melchizedek. He referred to him back in chapter 5. Uh, but then that set him off on a um, sort of a, a excursion into uh, concerns he had for them, both as to their immaturity, whereas they should have progressed even further than they were, as well as the danger of apostasy uh, and the reality of that. But then his his encouragement uh, for them, that he certainly expects better things for them. And he returns then to Melchizedek, which he describes in the first few verses, first ten verses of chapter 7, uh, as being a new order of priest, uh, one that the Levites uh, came afterward, uh, were of a different order, a different class, but uh, the uh, the position this, this man held as his name, king of righteousness, he was also the king of Salem, uh, or Jerusalem later, uh, but then also his superiority, even to Levi, even to the to the, the the priests in the line of Aaron, uh, as demonstrated by the fact that Abraham uh, is is uh, shows deference to Melchizedek, pays tithes to him, which as he argues is as though Levi himself paid tithes to uh, to Melchizedek, for he was still at least metaphorically in the loins of his ancestor Abraham when Melchizedek met him. So let's look then at uh, verses 11 and following, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Hear the word of God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures and pray tonight as we study them that we would worship you. Lord, as we think about this passage, uh, that we would stand in amazement of our Lord Jesus and who he is and what has been done through him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For much of of us, many of us, as we read this, what the writer is saying here is ordinary. It almost seems like common sense. Now, granted, it's not easy to sort of follow his argument as it weaves in, in and around. But we have no difficulty with what he's saying. Well, we'd say, well, of course, Jesus is superior. Well, naturally, he's he's better than the old priesthood. But remember that for Jewish readers of these words, especially as we would uh, suppose the case to be, those who were wavering, those who were struggling, those who were tempted at least to bring into their Christian faith some elements of Judaism, if not revert to it wholesale, that these, while they're the ideas that by definition of being believers uh, they have accepted, are nevertheless a complete paradigm shift a complete change in their understanding of everything that had been their world. I think one of the reasons Paul had that time out after his conversion was to enable him, who knew the Old Testament so well, to adjust his understanding of it now to see it all in light of Christ. That, that was a, a huge change to see how Jesus was the fulfillment of it. He was the one that that it pointed to, that required some retooling in his whole understanding of the scriptures. And so this was pretty big stuff to those to whom the writer was writing, and yet it's true. And it's very much in keeping with his theme of the superiority of Jesus in all kinds of ways, superior to the Old Testament prophets, superior to the angels, yes, even superior to Moses, and here, uh, again, talking about Jesus' priesthood, but, but with an eye toward how and why it's better than what they had before. And so that's what we want to look at here. A couple of truths that he brings out. He talks about a lot in these verses. We could spend far more than an evening going through these verses uh, for all that's here. But I want us to just sort of take a, a, a little bigger view of it and break it up into two basic truths that he is talking about here. First of all, Jesus has a better priesthood. And then second, Jesus himself is a better priest. So let's look at it under those headings. First, Jesus has a better priesthood. And this is really what he's talking about in verses 11 through 19. Just the whole nature of the Old Testament priesthood and then this this new order, this new priesthood 
that is established. First, he talks about the imperfections of the old priesthood. Look at verse 11. problem with it is it couldn't bring perfection. The problem with the old Levitical priesthood, the line of Aaron, uh, God-ordained as it was, was that it couldn't finally and fully bring about what it represented. That's what he says in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? In other words, if it could bring about perfection, completion, the fulfillment that God ultimately had in mind, if it could do that, there would be no need for anything else. But that's precisely the problem. It couldn't. It couldn't because of the nature of the men themselves, uh, which we'll talk about a little later here in the chapter, and also because of the nature of the sacrifices they offered, which were animals. Uh, God uh, never accepted any kind of human sacrifice uh, which uh, sadly was the practice of the nations uh, there in Canaan before the Israelites um, and, and influenced Israel in that way. Um, God established a sacrificial system of animals that uh, were symbolic, that represented the principle of atonement, the principle of substitution, uh, an animal that was as perfect as they could find to die in the place of a sinful person. Uh, but that itself could not bring about an actual permanent atonement for sin. And so we see that in verse 11. If that had been accomplished, there wouldn't be a need for a new one. And not only so, but the, the imperfection of it was demonstrated in the wholesale change that the Lord brings about. Look at verse 12. When there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. Now he said under the old system that people received the law, that whole establishment. Well, if you're going to have a different priesthood, you've got to change the whole structure. You've got to change the whole system. The old law was set up for Aaron, for, for his line of descent to serve as the priest. Well, he's saying you have to have a wholesale change. There's necessarily a change in the law. You can't just change the priesthood system and not change other things as well. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. Now, he makes much of this, that Jesus was not of Levi. He was not of, uh, of Aaron. He was, as he says, of the tribe of Judah, uh, a tribe for which no one ever served at the altar. Judah there wasn't the priestly line. So he's pointing out the whole law, the whole system has to change because this new order of priests doesn't even come from the tribe of Levi. Uh, very different. In verse 14, it's evident our Lord was descended from Judah. Moses said nothing about priests from Judah. That's his whole argument here, is that the old system couldn't bring about the perfection that God ultimately had in mind. And in order uh, to, to demonstrate its imperfection, a wholesale change was made. It wasn't just a tweaking, well, we still go with the line of Levi, we still go with Aaron and his descendants, just kind of tweak it a little. No, wholesale change, whole transformation takes place. Uh, talking about Jesus having a better priesthood, that scene, the need for it is because of the imperfection of the old. But then also uh, talking about the same, the same heading, the, this better priesthood, he talks about the perfection of the new priesthood. The old one was imperfect. It couldn't accomplish the very thing it symbolized. But the new one could. Look at verse 15 and following. There's been a wholesale change in verse 15. 
Uh, he says this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now, this kind of goes back to verses 1 through 10, where he says essentially there are two orders of priests. There's the line, the order of Melchizedek, and then there's the, the which, which came earlier and then came later, the line of Levi, the line of, of uh, his descendant Aaron. Well, he goes back here to talking about Jesus being like Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek, he takes sort of as an example and sort of plays off his mysteriousness. We don't know where he came from. He was, he was just there. Uh, his name is King of Righteousness, King of Peace, Salem, Shalom, is the words are related. Um, that he is a priest because he's appointed to it by God and not because we know his descent. Now, that's not typically the way we tend to reason things, but that's the way that the writer to the Hebrews is, is using Melchizedek to illustrate how Jesus is a different, comes in a different order of priest, sort of sets Melchizedek up as sort of this different order, and Jesus is part of that, not by physical descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Again, sort of setting Melchizedek up as this figure who shows up, Abraham pays tithes to him, you know, seems to acknowledge him as the superior uh, well, Jesus is of that line of Melchizedek, verse 6, 17, is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever, Jesus is, after the order of Melchizedek. And it's a quote from Psalm 110, where Melchizedek is also referred to. Okay. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and now here in Hebrews. So the perfection of this new priesthood is seen that he, he arises not by physical descent, but basically by the appointment of God. And, and by the quality of his life, not just because he was somebody's son, not just because somebody was his daddy, but because God appointed him because of the nature of who he is. And so this, this gives us a better hope. Notice verse 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. By the law, he's basically referring to that whole old system, the old Levitical priesthood and the laws that were part of that. He says, now on the one hand, this is set aside. That was temporary. That was provisional. It was imperfect. The law made nothing perfect. And then in verse 19, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, they drew near to God through the old system, and yet it was a provisional, temporary, symbolic system. Uh, but it was God-given. That's not to demean it. God gave it to them, is simply to say that it was temporary, it was provisional, and ultimately could not fulfill the very thing it symbolized, which was for people actually to come into the presence of God. And so in verse 19, he says, we have a better hope. Now, that would be encouraging to people who thought, well, you know, it was great to have that human priest, you know, that, that temple that, um, that all those sacrifices, it was real, it was solid, it was tangible. You know, you could smell the altar, you could see the blood. He, the priest was there, he was real, you know, you could talk to him. But he's no, we have a better hope now in what Jesus has done. Because Jesus has a better priesthood, he's part of a better system. He's not of the order of Aaron, he is of the order of Melchizedek. 
which makes it superior, which makes it better, which provides us with a better hope through which indeed we draw near to God. So that's the first argument that he's making here is that Jesus has and is part of a better priesthood. He's of the line of Judah. He's not of the Levites. He's not a descendant of Aaron. His is a superior priesthood, order of Melchizedek. Now, he zooms in to focus more about Jesus himself. Not only does he have a better priesthood, he's part of a better priesthood, but he himself is a better priest. And that's what he goes on to talk about in the, the remaining verses here. So let's look at that. Number two, he is a better priest. Why? Well, he gives basically three reasons. One, Jesus is a better priest because he's part of a better covenant. Now, again, uh, the old covenant was, was God-ordained, but it was provisional. It pointed forward to something new, something better, a better covenant. Remember, even Jeremiah in, in, in Jeremiah 31 talks about when the Lord will make a new covenant, and he'll write his law in our hearts, and pour out his spirit, uh, which, of course, is fulfilled in, in the new covenant, in the New Testament, when Christ came. Now, notice in verse 20, but kept better covenant. It was made with an oath. Verse, verse 20, it was not without an oath. Those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. What's he getting at? We well, said, well, it, it happened as a matter of course. They just, by virtue and God's providence of being in the line of Levi, the line of Aaron, uh, Levi's descendant, they, they were, uh, they were priests. It just happened. Uh, but verse 21, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, remember earlier at the end of chapter six, he was talking about God's promises. When God makes an oath, you know, we would seal it. Well, I, I make this in the name of God. It's God is my witness, right? Well, what does God say? Well, God just says it. But if God wanted to emphasize it, as, as he makes the argument, God, God swears by himself. And that's exactly, he gets back into talking about these oaths. The Lord has sworn, he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of that, it makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Because it was made by an oath, because he was specifically singled out by the will, by the oath of God, that he is a priest. Not just because it happened he was a descendant of Aaron, he wasn't. But because God singled him out, and he's the guarantor of a better covenant. Which means... Our salvation rides on Jesus' credibility. It rides on Jesus doing what he said he would do. Now, you see this actually in other places in Scripture, what it means to guarantee something. Turn back to Genesis 43. You'll you'll be familiar with this. Uh, Genesis 43, verse 9. This goes back to when uh, Joseph was was leader in Egypt, and uh, his brothers come to him. And in Genesis uh, 43, you know, they, they want to go back. The brothers have gone back to Canaan. It's the, Jacob says, well, you need to go back, get more food. And uh, they, they say to him, you know, the man said, you won't see me unless your brother, uh, Benjamin, is, is with you. And Jacob is extremely reluctant, having lost, as he thinks, Joseph to send Jacob along or send, uh, send Benjamin along. And so in chapter 43, verse 9 uh, Judah says, uh, read verse 8, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety 
from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So he sets himself up as the guarantor of, of his brother's safety. And the, and the similar thing in chapter 44, uh, just one chapter over, verse 33, uh, where he's talking to Joseph and the need to return with Benjamin. He says, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would, uh, that would find my father. And, you know, that, that does Joseph in and he has to reveal himself in the next chapter to his brothers. But what Judah is doing here is essentially what Jesus does for us. He places himself as the guarantor, the one who is guaranteeing the safety, and in fact uh, is positively Christ-like in his willingness to put himself in Benjamin's place so that Benjamin can be free to go and that he himself is is detained and, and held. So that's what it means. And there's one other illustration of this in New Testament um, in Philemon. Uh, just before Hebrews, uh, verses 18 and 19, where Onesimus uh, is, uh, as Paul writes, uh, appealing for Onesimus, uh, who had stolen from his master to run away, meets up with Paul. Paul's writing back, and uh, Paul says in, in Philemon 17, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my Account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I love Philemon just because it's such a personal and direct letter and some irony in there uh, as well. Uh, when Paul says, you know, say nothing of your owing me your own life. Uh, but Paul is putting himself up as a guarantor for Onesimus. You know, if he's if he's taking anything, charge it to my account. I will pay it. I'll make it good for him. Well, those are illustrations of what it means when it says Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. It rides on him. He promises to make it good. And in fact, that's exactly what he does. So he has this better covenant, but also it's a, he's a better priest, uh, not only because he's a guarantor of a better covenant, but because of his eternal service. Notice verse 23. This is almost funny. The former priests were many in number. Why? Because they kept dying. They were prevented, which, you know, so they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Uh, pesky death, man. It just keeps popping up, wrecking everything. Uh, they kept dying. That's why you had to have more priests. You keep having more priests added because the former ones died. But Jesus, verse 24, holds his priesthood permanently because he doesn't die, because he continues forever. Now, brings us to verse 25. 25 could be and may one day be a sermon in itself, because uh, it really summarizes much of what has gone before, but it also, as you see by the word consequently there, or maybe read therefore in the version you're looking at, sort of ties up what we said here uh, about Jesus' service, his priesthood. Notice what it says. Look at it. I'll read it, and then we'll just look at it. Consequently, Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
says several things here. One, he's able to save us completely. He is able to save to the uttermost. That's important because that's precisely where we started saying that the old priesthood could not. If perfection had been attainable through that old priesthood, we wouldn't need a new one. But it wasn't attainable. But Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. In other words, he's able to save completely, fully, absolutely. Not only that, but he gains us access to God. To save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What that old priesthood symbolized and in a limited way provided for through the human priest is now available to everyone in Christ. Those who draw near to God through him, those who've come to the Father through the name, through the merit, saving work of Jesus. So it saves to the uttermost. It actually has gained us access to the Father, which was, which was graphically, uh, portrayed when Jesus died in that veil in the temple tears, separates, it separates the holy place from the holy of holies, it it just tears it apart. Uh, Because now through Christ, this access is is available. Then the third part, again, because it's ongoing priestly work, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus doesn't die. There's no need for a replacement. So he actually accomplishes our salvation. He actually gains for us entrance into the presence of God that he actually is able to continue to make intercession for us before the Father. What does that mean? I had somebody contact me this week, member of the church, we were kind of discussing by email. What is the nature of Jesus' intercession? We talk about that, uh, of his being at the right hand of the Father and his, his making intercession for us. What what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, there are a number of places in Scripture. Romans 8.33, Paul speaks of his intercession. Uh, I would think it involves a couple of things. One, it involves, obviously, um, as the hymn puts it, he pleads the merit of his blood. But it's not in the sense that he somehow that the, the issue is in doubt. The Father has accepted the sacrifice of the Son. That's that's done. In a sense, Jesus' very presence in heaven as the crucified and risen Savior itself pleads silently that he has atoned for the sins of his people. And he doesn't need to keep making sacrifices because he's done it once for all. So part of his intercessory work, it takes place, I think, by his mere presence in the, before his father as the lamb that was slain and now lives and is there at the right hand of the father until he returns in glory. But intercession not only means pleading the merit of his blood for our salvation, but intercession in the sense of praying for, which was also a priestly function. Does Jesus pray for us? Does he Pray for us like we might pray for something. Is the issue in doubt? Well, yes and no. Think of um, Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. Uh, I think there's some element of that still in Jesus with his Father. Uh, think of uh, in Luke. Think of where Jesus says to Peter, this is Luke 22, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Is Jesus' ongoing ministry in heaven, kind of that, that intercession, as he mentions praying for Peter there, praying for us now. Uh, I think so, and yet not as though he's simply hoping his father will answer it, but rather uh, as the, the, the 
royal priest who merely needs to name it and it's done. Not as though his father's reluctant to grant the requests of the son, but the son makes requests he's earned the right to through his, his ministry. I want to read you just briefly along these lines a quote from F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary on Hebrews. I think he just puts it well. Uh, maybe it will clarify what I've possibly muddied. This is what he says. The appearance in God's presence of the crucified one constitutes his perpetual and prevalent, that is, it prevails, intercession. His once completed self-offering is utterly acceptable and efficacious. His contact with the Father is immediate and unbroken. His priestly ministry on his people's behalf is never-ending, and therefore the salvation which he secures to them is absolute. Now, he goes on, the writer of the Hebrews does, uh, simply to uh, describe further uh, the nature of Christ himself as a priest. And if we said he's a better priest because of his better covenant, if we say he's a better priest because of his eternal service, it's also because of his flawless character. Look at verse 26. He himself is without sin. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Not only that, he's exalted above the heavens. He's now with the Father. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. If nothing else, the priest, the human priest, was a sinner who needed to offer sacrifices for himself, but also certainly for the people. Uh, but Jesus took care of all of them, not no sins for himself, but for his people once for all when he offered up himself. Um, none of the human priests offered up themselves. Jesus did. He was both priest and offering. But it was a once-for-all, permanent, forever effective sacrifice that dealt with the sins of the people he represented. And then verse 28 summarizes, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. Back to where we started. But the word of the oath, the promise of God, the oath of God, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And really, verse 28 just summarizes both parts of what we've looked at tonight. The weakness and ultimate inadequacy of the old covenant priesthood, the human priesthood, but then the absolute sufficiency of a son who has been made perfect forever, whose priesthood is, is always effective, always prevails. By the way, just by way of conclusion, looking at this, obviously we want to give thanks to God for what we have in Christ uh, while learning from the old system. And it does have a lot to teach us about Jesus' ministry. You can't fully appreciate Jesus until you understand Leviticus. Sorry, but it's true. Leviticus teaches us about what Jesus did. It helps us to understand what Jesus did. Yes, we want to take that away and give thanks. But also notice the whole purpose here. I think... When we become Christians, we tend to have sort of an immature view of the Christian life. Not a wrong view, but an immature, almost juvenile view. Thank you, Jesus, for what I have. Thank you for how you bless me. Thank you for how you forgive my sins. Thank you for how you provide for me. Thank you for how I know you're taking care of me in this world. All of which are great things. We should want that. But this this passage points us toward a, mature, a more mature understanding which is not just thank you for forgiving me, thank you for providing for me, thank you for guiding me, but it is thank you, Lord, that now in you I can draw near to God. I can have that relationship with my Heavenly Father that you have made possible, Lord Jesus. So we move, while, while not 
uh, failing to be thankful for all of the other things that, that we are thankful for, we at the same time recognize that the purpose of Jesus' ministry ultimately, while providing those things for us, is to enable us once again to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father that he has made possible through his work as our priest in offering up himself as the sacrifice and continuing to serve as our go-between, our mediator, that through him we are able, as he says, to draw near to God, since he always lives to make intercession for us. So yes, thank God for what we have in Christ, but above all, what this chapter points to, and that is uh, that we have God himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your better priesthood, for being a better priest. Father, while we thank you for that old system, we give thanks to you, Lord, that we live in the day uh, when we know the Savior, when we know the one who is the great high priest. And Father, we thank you for his ongoing work. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even now, even now as we pray, as we come to the Father together, that it is possible because of what you have done and what you are doing even now. And we pray it in your name. Thank you. Amen.